Good morning, everyone. Wow. <laughs> Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer as we begin here. Um, if you could just uh, close your eyes and just um, focus on the Lord and on his love for you. I just feel like it may be for some of you in the room this morning um, that especially if you feel discouraged, um, especially if it feels like there's been steps forward but also steps backwards, um, if it feels like things were going well but feels less like that now, just in the course of the discouragement of week-to-week -week life and ministry. Um, I just feel like the Lord, as we go to the word this morning, might just want us to take a deep breath just in his grace and in his love. And just to remember that our circumstances don't dictate how much God loves us. And that his promises are as real on our bad days as they are on our good days. And that we are as much favored when it feels like the kingdom is moving forward as it does when it feels like God is silent and we can't see his work at all. Um, the cross has settled all of these issues for us. We are loved. We are favored. Eternally blessed and secure. So Lord, we just receive your love um, as we approach this passage this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us of your purposes in our lives and in our church. And Lord, we ask that today we would know that you are good. That your mercies are new every morning. They're new this morning. Like one song says, your love is an everyday kind of love. It's a love for today. And so, Lord, we just rest in that. And, Lord, I ask that as we approach this passage that your love would rest on us heavy and allow us not to hear the condemnation of the enemy, but to see the promise that we have a Savior who has silenced the accuser and made us safe forever. So, Lord, we receive that love again. It's a love worth celebrating, remembering, singing about, talking about, living out of. Lord, we receive it fresh today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 4 today. I mentioned this last week, but this passage might be one of the most difficult, challenging, even disturbing, we could say, passages in the New Testament. Um, but there's good news in it for us. This passage is a focusing passage for us, not just as individuals, but as a church. And so um, I, I want us to allow the Lord to speak to us. At Crestmont, we often talk about invitation and challenge, right? That God invites us and challenges us, and that's how we relate to one another through the um, view of invitation and challenge. Well, this is definitely, in many ways, more of a challenge portion of Scripture, all right? Um, but God speaks to us in the challenging passages as well. So let's open our hearts to what he has to say. 
We're going to begin reading in Acts 4, verse 34, which we read last week, but it sets up Acts chapter 5. If you'd stand to your feet in honor of God's word, and I'm going to begin reading. Hey, just before we read, I just want to say I was so filled with love for you all this morning um, as I was praying and preparing, and I love you guys. And I just love being part of this family. And um, I am so blessed and made rich uh, by being in relationship with you. And so I'm so grateful for you. All right, enough mushiness. Let's get, let's get to the hard passage. All right, Acts 4:34. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Amen. You can take your seats. All right, heavy passage and a disturbing story. Remember where we are in the story of Acts. Luke is the author of this story, inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us the story of the early church. The early church is still very new, right? This is the, uh, the beginning of the church's story. Uh, the, uh, some of the first Christians who are beginning to uh, follow Jesus together and live their life together in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we have this story of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. So it would be good for us to ask, what is it that they did that prompted this kind of response from God? this radical display of God's justice and holiness, what could they have done? 
that would require this kind of thing. Well, what they did was they misrepresented a voluntary act of generosity. We're told in Acts chapter 4 that God's Spirit was so powerfully working among these early believers that they were moved to radical generosity. So some of the early believers began to sell off their houses or property, and they began to bring it to the apostles' feet, which is a way of saying that they were entrusting these resources to the leaders of the early church, not so the leaders of the early church could keep it for themselves, but so that it could be distributed to those who had need or for the mission. Um, it's interesting, throughout church history, when God's spirit has worked powerfully, uh, we can see throughout church history repeats of this kind of thing, of people being moved to radical generosity. In our own movement, the Christian Missionary Alliance, um, there are stories of services like this where God's power was moving so strongly, people began to weep over the loss, began to weep over the nations, and in the service spontaneously, they would begin to take off their rings or empty their pockets of their valuables and put it into the offering because they so wanted to see people who did not know the name of Jesus be reached. Lord, move our hearts again for that kind of generosity, right? Move in our hearts to loosen our hands so that what we have um, can be for the mission and can belong to him. Um, now, it needs to be stated, at no point had the apostles demanded that this be done. They were not commanding the people to sell their houses and land and to give it. This was a free will thing that the people were doing, just moved by the love of God. And so nobody asked Ananias and Sapphira to give anything. Peter even says this. Didn't this belong to you? And after you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do whatever you wanted to do with it? Um, so no one was being forced to give in these kinds of ways. But Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property that they had. And then they kept back some of the money for themselves, which really they would have been allowed to do. And then here was the sin. They misrepresented the extent of their generosity. They gave the rest of the money, and they lied and said that they had given the full amount. Now, what is lying? Lying, to some extent, is manipulation. It's an attempt to try to bend the world into a new reality that benefits me somehow, right? It's an attempt to change reality most of the time in a way that benefits me. Now, I bet everybody in this room has lied at one point or another. We see something in Ananias and Sapphira that this was a calculated, conspiratorial lie. They were both in on it together. They knew exactly what they were doing when they came and they exaggerated their generosity to Peter, which begs the question, what was their motive in doing this? Why is it that they wanted to lie or exaggerate this act of generosity? What is it that they're trying to get at? And here's just a guess. I don't know that we're exactly told in the passage, but here's just a guess. Um, they are trying to somehow manipulate the leaders of the early church into believing that something is true about them that is not completely true. And why would they want that? Maybe it's because they are looking for leadership themselves. Maybe it's because they are looking for influence that they do not have. Maybe they are looking to cozy up to the leaders of the early church so that they can have a voice 
and how things are happening. I don't know exactly what, but somehow they are looking for some kind of power to be able to manipulate and influence the early church. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, makes a really bold statement that ultimately it is Satan himself who is behind this with Ananias and Sapphira. Interestingly enough, um, we aren't really ever told that Ananias and Sapphira are even believers. Um, the only thing that, that Peter says about them is that Satan has filled their hearts, which is a really strong statement, especially when up until this point in the book of Acts, what has been described as people being filled with who? The Holy Spirit, right? So this is the polar opposite. They're not being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're being filled with Satan. In other words, somehow Satan was scheming against the early church and found a willing participant in Ananias and Sapphira and works in them with the target of somehow disrupting what's happening in the early church. Now, that's really heavy for one reason, is because it is a picture that when God's Spirit is really working with a group of people, when God's Spirit is really moving a group of people on mission and he's empowering them to do it, a passage like this shows us to what great lengths the enemy, Satan, will go to to disrupt what's happening. Right? We have to realize, friends, that what we're involved in is a war. That's how Satan sees it. And if we don't see it, we often are left unprepared for the battle. I do find that there are many, many Christians who, although they've served in various capacities and, and you know, volunteered for programs in the church and all of that stuff is good, nonetheless, they've never really engaged the mission in a way that wakes them up to the reality that this is a battle, that this is a war. And then, sometimes when they first take the step into the mission, and what they find is a battle, they're very unprepared and very surprised at what they stepped into. Because maybe the church never prepared them for this reality, right? That this is war. That this is a battle. That Satan is working with everything he's got to try to disrupt the move of God on the earth. Imagine if our government did not prepare soldiers for war, right? But just said, we're putting you on a plane. We're not going to tell you for what. We're just going to land and see what happens, right? Um, not only would that be bad for the battle, it would be terrible for the soldier. The soldier would be a danger to himself or herself and a danger to the battle, right? Um, I really feel like especially as our church steps more and more into the mission. It's our responsibility not to respond in fear. We respond in faith because this battle is won, right? But we do have to prepare each other for the battle. We have to pray like we're in a battle. Stand with each other like we're in a battle because this is war. So what Peter finds himself face to face here is a strategy of the enemy to try to infiltrate the church with two people who are somehow willing to make themselves look better than what they are so that they can have more influence in the life of the church. And this is what Peter is facing. Now, this is actually the second time I've ever preached on this passage. The first time was when I first started preaching here at Crestmont um, regularly, almost a decade ago now. And I remember the first time I preached on this, 
I just felt like, oh, what a stinky passage to have to preach on. I'm trying to think, what is the application out of this passage to have to preach? The people aren't going to want to hear this, you know what I'm saying? Um, But I I just want to say this before we move on, that at this point in my leadership, and, um, you know, if it's God's will, you know, most of my years of leadership are still ahead of me. I'm still relatively new to this, right? Um, But even at this point, relatively early on in my leadership, I find a comfort in this passage that I was not able to identify a number of years ago. And here's what it is. That when God builds a movement of the Holy Spirit, he will protect it. He will intervene. Um, I know God uses Peter in this passage very powerfully. Peter, by the Holy Spirit, knows that Ananias and Sapphira have lied. Nobody snuck him a note telling him that that's what happened. No one whispered in his ear telling him that's what happened. He knew by the Holy Spirit. We call that a word of knowledge. He knew something supernaturally by the Holy Spirit they couldn't have known otherwise. So God is using him powerfully in this. And yet, very clearly, it's God who's doing it, right? Peter exercises leadership, but it's God who's doing it. And I find a kind of comfort in this, that Satan will try all kinds of sneaky things to bring a group of people down. But we have a defender. We have a protector who empowers us. And listen, we have a responsibility. If you're a leader in this room, wherever God has given you influence, even if it's only in your own home, you have a responsibility to exercise leadership, and yet we can ultimately trust that God will defend the thing that he has built, all right? That God will protect it, that God will see it through, that God will give gifts and grace and wisdom and insight at key critical points so that what he has built will be protected and still move forward. Nonetheless, Um, I also want you to see this in this passage, that this story, I think, has more to do than just with the sin of two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira, and God's radical response to it. Um, I think the next part of Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, where it talks about how common miracles were in the early church and how people were being added to their number, I think that part of the passage tells us something that Luke wants us to see in this story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I think this for a number of reasons. Interestingly enough, in verse 11, it's the first time in the book of Acts that the word church is actually used. The church is being talked about all throughout this book, including the previous chapters. But in verse 11, uh, the author, Luke, uses the word for the first time. And I think that's some kind of exclamation point. He wants us to see something that he's trying to communicate in this passage. Um, and I don't think it's a mistake, obviously, that he kind of finishes this bummer downer of a story and goes into this amazing story of God's power and miracles and Peter's shadow falling on people and healing them. I think he wants us to see these two stories next to each other. He wants us to see something in Ananias and Sapphira and something in this move of God in the early church, and he wants us to see it next to each other because I think really what Luke is doing is painting for us two different pictures of what church can be. 
I think he's showing us two different ways we can do this thing. Two different ways we can be a community of people. And so I'm going to call the first one, I have a chart here for you. I'm going to call the first one the Church of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Now, obviously, Ananias and Sapphira weren't leading a church. They weren't pastors, but they were trying to infiltrate this church and get some kind of leadership and influence in it. So I want you to see in their story a kind of picture, the church of Ananias and Sapphira. And then I want you to see in the next verses, in verses 12 through uh, 16, I want you to see the real church of Jesus. And I want you to see how these two things are different from each other because I think this says everything about how uh, we operate as a church. Listen, I want you to know this. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is not about some Christians who showed up at a worship service like this still struggling with sin in their lives, right? That's all of us in this room, right? Um, It's not a story about people who were in conversation and stumbled into a lie, right? It's not about people who feel caught in sin and don't know how to get free but really want to be free. It's important that you see this. Um, Listen, sin is sin, and all of it is wrong, but this story is about something in particular. It's about two people who conspired under the influence of Satan to try to gain influence in a church. And I think we need to see what's happening here for the kind of people that God wants us to be. Okay, i got to go quick through this. First of all, in the church of Ananias and Sapphira, human effort is the norm. But in the church of Jesus, the supernatural is the norm. Listen, God is moving supernaturally in this early church to cause them to give with great generosity. And Ananias and Sapphira decide to fake it, right? They decide to do the best that they can do, um, which is to give what they think that they can give, to hold back some, and then to lie about it. It's an attempt to try to make it look like God is doing something and that they're a part of it, but really underneath it, it's bankrupt because it's just them. And it's tainted by their sin and weakness. But look at what's happening through the early church where there's all of these miracles, where Peter's shadow is following on people, where people who are um, oppressed by demons are being brought to the apostles. People who are sick are being brought to the apostles. And I love what it says in verse 16, that all of them were getting healed, right? Um, We do live in a day, my friends, when the church is tempted to turn away from God's supernatural power and to replace it with something else. And when a church gets rid of God's supernatural power, it will be tempted to reach for poor substitutes. Some people just try to fake God's supernatural power. I was a pastor I respect, and he said, I grew up in a church that celebrated the work of the Holy Spirit, and and he said, sometimes someone would say into the mic, God is here, God is working. And he said, but everybody knew that the sound guy was just turning up the volume, you know? He said, it wasn't that God was working, it's just that the sound system was being turned up, right? And it was just being worked up. Some people do it that way, or some people, when they stop experiencing, some churches, when they stop experiencing God's supernatural power, reach for slick productions, for things that, give us the feeling, a way of doing church that's so performance-oriented. It gives us the feeling of transcendence, but there's no real power underneath it. We will always reach for a poor substitute. Sadly, 
in many churches today, if God were to start working supernaturally like he did in this passage in the book of Acts, if someone was so filled with the Holy Spirit that their shadow falling on someone healed them, in many churches today, that would not only be looked at with suspicion, it would be viewed as unbiblical. We've so lost it. We've so drifted. And we want to reach for other things. But it's so shallow. What Ananias and Sapphira are doing is so shallow. And guys, the world doesn't need our shallow ideas. You know that, right? People are lost. They're hungry. They're poor. They're being oppressed by the devil. And they don't need our shallow fakeness. They need the real thing. And the good news is there is real power. In the church of Ananias and Sapphira, masks come on. All right? Um, hiding is celebrated and normal. Um, Ananias and Sapphira somehow use religion to hide. But in the church of Jesus, masks come off. I love how it says in the verses, in the, the later verses that we read in Acts 5, that many believed, many men and women believed, which was to say they believed that they were sinners in need of a Savior. Time for the mask to come off. They were ready to reach out for a God who was ready and willing to help them, to receive the salvation that God was giving. Um, in the church of Ananias and Sapphira, there's a temptation for people to try to manipulate to the inside, manipulate to become insiders. This is religion at its worst. When people use church as a way to somehow feed their own insecurities so that they can become insiders to something, do you notice something different in the description of the early church that follows the story of Ananias and Sapphira? It's interesting how it says it in those later verses um, in Acts 5, 12 to 16, it says that they were meeting in the temple where they had already been warned not to meet, right? The leaders of the established religion were already telling them not to meet there, not to preach there. But they kept meeting there, they kept preaching there, they kept performing miracles there. And it says that nobody dared join them. But then in the next verse, it says that a lot of people were joining them. So what's going on there? It's saying everybody was afraid to be associated with these people because they knew that the people in charge did not like them. But it was irresistible. They couldn't resist it. They wanted to be a part of it. See, if religion for us is some kind of manipulation game to become an insider to something, then we don't realize that the cross means that we're all insiders with God, right? It's exactly the opposite. At the center of the thing is not the same social ladders that we spend so much time thinking about when we're out in the world. At the center of the thing is God's own love, and the doors are open, and anyone can be drawn to the inside. In the church of Ananias and Sapphira, people are at the center. But in Jesus' church, God is at the center of everything. And then this last thing as I close that I want you to see in the church of Ananias and Sapphira, God actually gets in the way of that kind of church. But in Jesus' church, God powerfully works through it. I'm going to say that again. God will get in the way of certain kinds of churches. But he will powerfully work through other kinds of churches. You know, if it's just Satan getting in the way of us, well, we can handle that, right? 
because we have Jesus on our side. But if it's God getting in the way of a church, that church isn't going very far, right? Now, this is where I might need you to think the most, but just follow my train of thought here as I reflected on this passage this last week. We said, John, if you could start playing. We said earlier on, uh, a few weeks ago, as we were preaching through Acts, we said that one question Luke is trying to answer as we read the, the book of Acts is this. He's trying to answer this question for us. What about the temple? What happens to the temple now? So you might remember in the Old Testament, God had commanded that there be a place of worship on the earth. It was a tent at first called the tabernacle, and then eventually God's people built a temple, a permanent structure. And this place was a hot spot of God's presence and activity on the earth. It's where God's people came to worship for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And at the center of that form of worship was what? Animal sacrifice. We were talking about this a few weeks ago. A gruesome, a really gruesome way of worshiping was that every time they came to worship, they killed an innocent animal, even though they were the guilty sinner, killed the innocent animal, and they worshiped God in the midst of that bloodshed. Why would God command such a gruesome way of worship? Well, it's because God was creating a picture for his people over and over again that blood must be shed for our rebellion. That blood must be shed for our sin. And all of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled. And scripture is so clear that blood has to be shed for that. It should be our blood, right? So what was the picture? And an innocent animal dying. Well, the picture was that God was going to send eventually an innocent man who would shed his blood so that we would not have to have our blood shed for our sins, so that we could live forever, so that he could take the punishment, so that we wouldn't have to experience that punishment. See, at the center of true worship has always been Jesus' sacrifice. The animal uh, sacrifices looked forward to Jesus coming. Now we look back on Jesus' sacrifice, right? It's always at the center of what real worship is all about. Now, here's an interesting thing. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that what happened to Ananias and Sapphira is actually not new to the way God works. Um, here's what I mean. Luke's answer to the question, what has happened to the temple, is this. Well, now Jesus was the sacrifice, so we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. He has poured out his presence on us, his people, so that we don't have to go to a particular place to experience his presence anymore. We experience his presence wherever we gather together, right? And his spirit lives inside of us. Um, and the temple is not necessary anymore because we are the temple. We are the place where God dwells. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. There are these strange stories all throughout the Old Testament when there was a tabernacle and then a temple. There are these strange stories where people offered bad sacrifices and experienced terrible results. I could pull out so many, but I just want to point out three. I have them on the screen here. Um, the first, and this is actually before there even was a tabernacle or temple, this guy named Cain offers a sacrifice. His brother Abel offers a sacrifice. God rejects Cain's sacrifice, but accepts Abel's, and this is causes jealousy between them, so Cain kills his brother Abel, and then the history of humanity's bloodshed ever since, right? 
God calls Cain's sacrifice a bad sacrifice. There's these two guys, Nadab and Abihu. You can read about them in Leviticus 10, but these are actually the sons of the first high priest of the tabernacle, a guy named Aaron. These are his sons, and they're also priests. And we're not exactly told everything that happened, but somehow, the scripture says, some translations say it this way, they offered strange fire. They burnt something that they shouldn't have burnt to God, and God's judgment was swift. He burnt them up and killed them. And then the first king of Israel, Saul, finds himself in this situation where the prophet at the time, Samuel, tells him to wait to offer the sacrifice until a certain time. Saul gets antsy, wants to do it on his own timeline, so he offers the sacrifice, and Samuel rebukes him swiftly. Eventually, Saul loses the kingdom. And I could go on and on and on of these stories where there were bad sacrifices made. Now, follow me. Why were they bad sacrifices? Because all of these examples and the others that I could give you in Scripture put at the center of worship human manipulation. The way people want to do it. The way that they think it should be done. Putting themselves first. The reason God rejects these sacrifices when they are given is because they did not keep the picture of Jesus at the center of the sacrifice, right? And do you see, that's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 5. Are you following me? Ananias and Sapphira do the same thing. They try to worship in a way that puts them at the center. They try to worship in a way where they use religious stuff to make themselves look better. Um, it's a way of worship that does not keep Jesus at the center. And here's what I can say confidently to us this morning God will always reject the kind of worship that does not keep Jesus at the center of it. He will always oppose the kind of church that does not keep Jesus at the center. That's a strong word, huh? Now, here's the good news. Let me end on an encouraging note. As I was preparing to preach this message, and I got a word this morning that really confirmed this for me from one of our intercessors. I was just thanking the Lord that this morning I don't have to preach this passage as some kind of corrective to us at Crestmont. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but I'm saying I have a deep sense, church, that Jesus is at the center of things here. I have a deep sense that Jesus is at the center of so many of your lives and your story. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean anything. It just means what is central. What are we headed towards? I really have the sense that here we're not headed towards some slick performance or some personality, but we're headed towards Jesus. And I can tell you this, a church that puts Jesus at the center because Jesus is limitless in his power, the story that God can write out of that kind of church is limitless, right? When Jesus is at the center of it. This is gonna be the last thing I say, and I'm gonna sit down and let Steve close. But I just have to share with you this story because it blessed me. A few years ago, um, we had uh, a guy come and pretend to be a visitor here at our church. And we knew that he was coming. The leadership knew that he was coming. But here was this guy's resume. He had been in charge of the marketing department at one of the largest churches in the nation. Very gifted and skilled, particularly at marketing. 
And he had worked, I'm not going to name the church, but if I named the church and the pastor, you would recognize it. And so he had been in one, one of the, what's viewed as one of the most successful churches. But then over his, over his uh, career, he spent time with churches that were a lot like us. Maybe not the largest congregations, but powerful in their impact in the community. I mean, he noticed that some of the churches that were having the most impact in the community often had, it was surprising that they weren't bigger than what they were. But they were having major impact. And he realized that these churches, very many times, could not afford a marketing consultant. They didn't have a marketing department. You know, they didn't, they, sometimes they couldn't even pay someone to do their website. There just wasn't those kinds of resources. And so he was so moved by the stories of these churches that he decided to spend time giving away his services for free. And we were one of the churches that he came and spent time with us and consulted with us for a weekend. And I just want to tell you about his time with us. This is a number of years ago, five years ago now. But he came in, pretended to be a visitor, and right away noticed many good things about us. And then I met with him in the office afterwards, and here's what he said to me. He said, Joel, your website stinks. He said, it's not neutral. He said, I promise you there are people who will never visit your church because of that website. We have a new website now, all right? Um, he said, there's a lot of things about the church that aren't impressive, and he listed these things. And then he started crying in my office. And here's what he said. And this, I'm telling you this to bless you. This is what he said. He said, Joel, um, I spend a lot of time with churches who are willing to pay me a lot of money to make a website so they can look like God is doing something at their church. See, that's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, is to exaggerate what God is doing instead of putting Jesus at the center and seek him, the real deal, right? Um, he said, I spent a lot of time, and then he started crying, and he said, "Your in tears, he says, your website stinks so bad. And he said, but God is doing something real here. And it's amazing how he's blessing even when you're not doing these other things well. Now he told me, fix your website, do better at it, right? But I think it's just important that I say that because in a few weeks we're gonna be talking about, you know, God is blessing us, we're dealing with some landscaping, we're gonna fix the, some things here in the sanctuary. Um, hopefully we're gonna clean things up a little bit. But Cresma, I wanna tell you, I'm not in it for that stuff. I'm in it because I want to be part of a community, like I believe so many of you do. I want to be part of a community that Jesus is at the center of, and the stories that we get to tell are not about people and their own efforts and their own ideas, but the stories that we get to tell are about the greatness and the goodness of Jesus and the things that we saw him do in our lifetimes, right? That's what I want to be part of, and I think that's what we're doing together. Can you guys stand with me as we close? And if the prayer ministers could come and stand along the front here so people know who you are, uh, if you want to be prayed for. I feel like the assignment for us together right now is really easy. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, the Bible says to stand against the devil's schemes um, and to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the light um, of the world, and he says that we are. And as we gaze on him and behold his power and his glory, we come into a revelation of the reality of who we are in him. 
we walk as that church that was on your right, my left, um, where the supernatural is the norm because we're dependent and we're full. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift you up, Lord God, that all men would be drawn to you through your ministry through this church. We declare you, Lord, as the Lord and the King of this local expression of your kingdom. Jesus, you are our Lord. We exalt you and we lift you up. We agree with heaven that you are glorified and at the right hand of the Father, Lord God. We praise you. And I just declare over us that we are an exceedingly great army and that we will be great because we will continue to lift up the name of the Lord as our center, as our focus, as our fortress. I declare the Lord alone is our stronghold. Whom shall we fear? Father, we come into your lap and receive your love. We receive your approval afresh right now in the name of Jesus. We receive, Lord, our security that comes from you and your love for us, your acceptance, Lord God. I just take up spiritual authority as we close here. I bind Satan, his works in darkness that try to come against this church. We say no in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Holy Spirit, we just receive you right now. Lord, fill our church. Lord, fill our church with your glory, Lord God. Lord, more of you, Lord Jesus. Lord, for the surpassing greatness of knowing you. Lord, we bless your holy name. We exalt you. And we glorify you, Lord Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, light of this army, light of this church. Praise you, Lord. And the time is short. Lord God, may we have your urgency. May we have your love, Lord God. Guide us, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I love you. <laughs> I know you do. Go in the love of Jesus. I'm just...